Assalamu alaikum, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everyone to day seven of Surah Baqarah. I have no idea how many more days, but this is very exciting. I can't believe we've spent a week on, on Surah Baqarah. I mean, I can and I can't, but I'm so excited to know what more we're going to cover. Um, just before we get started, I thought I would share, um, you know, I, I try to keep a pulse, I guess, on what's happening in the world through social media and through different things. Um, as many of you know, my training was in uh, brand management. I have my MBA. I started at Johnson & Johnson in product management. So a lot of that is really trying to um, understand who your customer is, how to market, how to speak, what is interesting to your audience, how do you say things in a way that would capture their attention. And I always have felt very blessed that those skills have come in very handy. I've always sort of cons considered myself like a marketer of um, Dr. Abel Fuddle's thought. Um, and especially now with the Suli Institute, um, you know, trying really hard to think about, you know, how do we reach more people? How do we speak to them in a compelling way um, and, and pique their interest? Um, because, you know, we, we live in a time, obviously, where um, I think Muslims have become kind of numb to definitely the Quran, numb to the idea that Islam has anything to offer. A lot of the people that we connect with have left the mosques because what they hear, you know, in, in the masjid space is just mind-numbing. Um, and so, you know, it's a challenge for us too because since we are doing something against the grain, um, that we try to talk about it in a way that someone would think about it. So if, if, I, if I go on, you know, Facebook or Instagram or I'm speaking to someone, I say, yeah, we're talking about the Quran, we're doing, um, you know, we're studying about how Quran talks about justice. I think people would be like, you know, like they would just sort of turn off because people have sort of lost interest or stopped believing. I mean, you know, you walk into the into the mosque and you hear people reference the Quran, but the place, place of the Quran is much more, I think, like, you know, an encyclopedia or a dictionary. It's sort of a reference. It's something that people you know speak about with the underlying assumption that you should care and that it should drive you know your your life or you know should influence you and in how you you live your life at least that's how we approach it but i don't think that that necessarily is what is carrying over and so you know there therein lies the challenge of when we're talking about you know we're we're deep diving into 114 chapters of the quran we're trying to make it come alive, we're trying to make people fall in love with the Quran again, try to understand how the original message was received. Um, you know, these are sorts of some of the things that we think about, um, you know, how do, we, how do we say it? And so it's always interesting when I, when I connect with people, I sometimes will take an opportunity to, you know, ask them. So I just thought I would share um, a couple of things that I came across. Well, actually, okay, so two of the people that actually I follow on Facebook, who I, I really respect, are um, Hussam Ailoush, who is the head of care um, in uh, Southern California, and then also Zahra Bilou, who is the head of care up in San Francisco. And so interestingly, um, they just recently posted um, something that I consider really good market research, which is really, you know, what's gold as a marketer. You kind of would love to know, you know, who your audience is and what they think. So um, I, as I was out thinking about what I should say today, I thought, hmm, I remember seeing this post that, that Zahra just put up. Maybe I'll talk about that. And when I came back to look for it, I, had, I found that so many more people had commented and then Hossam added his. So Hossam's question to his followers um, is, what are the top three challenges our American Muslim community is facing, in your opinion? And um, you know, there were elicited a lot of responses. Well, look, I printed out everything. It's like this huge stack. And I thought, OK, maybe I'd have time to look at it before our halakha started today, and I didn't. But I'm going to go through it. Um, and then the Zahra's question was something to the effect of, um, actually, her question is, 
what will it take for Islam to be seen as an asset in the United States? And this was something she had posted yesterday, and I went through the comments back then. There were like over 70 comments. What was the most striking to me is while people were saying things like, oh, you know, we need to have more money invested in lobbying. We need to have, um, you know, people, Muslims come together. They need to be more connected to their faith. They need to, you know, a lot of like very general comments um, and people who are saying, oh, no, we need to, um, you know, have more people in media. We need to have more comedians. We need to have more people, whatever. None of it came back to the Quran. Like, none of it was, we need to have a better understanding of, you know, God's message that came to us. I think a lot of what people said maybe implied that. Like, some people would say, well, we need to reconnect with our faith. But, you know, it's very um, amorphous when you say that. And I think that people don't really understand, okay, sure, we need to be, you know, we need to come together. We need to unify. We need to be proud to be Muslim. But what does that really mean? And I think that... It's just so striking when, you know, even the way people talk about the Quran or the way they hold it in esteem is, is just so absent. You know, I mean, and I, we've had conversations here where it, it just seems like after we've gone now through, you know, 67 surahs and we're on our 68th surah, it seems so obvious. Like, how could you be a Muslim without understanding this, like everything that we're going through? Because it gives you so much strength and so much clarity and so much direction. But it's, it's sad that, you know, a lot of people are really just not aware that, you know, something like this is going on. Um, and so, you know, I just, I thought that um, I would just point that out and, you know, and put it out there. I, I like to try and, you know, at least say things that are a little bit thought-provoking um, in these introductions and also invite people. I mean, these are really important questions. I mean, what are the top three challenges? that we are facing, you know, as a, as a Muslim, American Muslim community, and what would it take for us to be an asset? And I, I'm gonna go through all of these. I'm gonna follow, you know, this, these two Facebook posts because I, I saw that there was some really valuable insight there and definitely for our work here to try and, you know, kind of shape how we talk about what we do. Um, but then I thought I would also share this really beautiful email, parts of it that I recently received. So someone had come across us and, um, and uh, made a really nice donation. And so I wrote back to her to thank her. Um, and just, you know, I always say, you know, if you'd like to share, I would love to know more about you. And so she told me that um, sadly she had lost her, her husband a few years back who was a convert. Um, and she thought she was going to be okay. Um, but then she realized soon that she wasn't okay and that she started going online and searching um, for some comfort um, in you know Muslim spaces and in, Muslim, in the Muslim community. Um, and she said that, um, so the initial, okay, let's see where I was starting. Um, the initial website I discovered was the Yakin Institute. I went through their articles and videos. Next stop was Mufti Menk's YouTube videos. Then Let the Quran Speak Q&A by Sheikh Shabir Ali. I like it um, because it is, uh, I like the way he answers controversial questions. And currently the Usuli Institute. I like the Usuli approach because it is one of a kind and refreshing. I always believe that Islam is a beautiful religion and the Usuli approach um, confirmed my belief system. And so currently I'm going through the Usuli Institute videos and materials. And so I wrote back to her and I said, thank you so much. You know, I'd be really curious to know like um, what your experience was and what you thought. Um, also, because it's you know interesting to me as a marketer, it's like, how do you find us? Where are you in your journey? What is it that you encounter? And what are the things that you encounter? How do they affect you? And, and then when you actually arrive at Usuli, like, what is it that strikes you the most and what is the most interesting? Because I think that a lot of people follow a very similar journey and it's good for us to know how to speak about that. 
So I, I asked her that specifically, and then she said, um, well, I'm always full of ideas, but nobody listens to me, so I'm going to share her ideas here. So she said, um, and she's an IT um, in, in technology, so she says, Apple versus Microsoft, which one is better? I like to play with, com uh, with computer analogies here. So the Suli Institute has a unique quality product. It's like the Apple of the world. It's just a matter of tweaking, packaging, and digital marketing to bring more web traffic to your website. Um, and then she says, um, following Steve Jobs' business approach, um, some people say give the customers what they want, but that's not my approach. She's quoting Steve Jobs. Um, and I think this is something interesting for us to think about. Um, give the customers what they want, but that's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going, going to want before they do. I think Henry Ford once said, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. And that's why I never rely on market research. Our task is to read things that are not yet on the page. And, um, and so she goes on to say, Suli followers are into quality product. We're the apples. And then she says, the Akeen Institute followers are the Microsoft of the world. They're into quantity as opposed to quality. Too much stuff going on there, which can cause information overload. And as a, as a consequence, blue screen of death. Time for a hard reboot, or in other words, off to the next channel. So I, um, I thought that was very interesting. I like knowing that we're the Apple of the world because you know Apple obviously is in a really good place. Um, but I just want to throw that out there to you know for people. Um, I think it's an important thing because in our space, you know, we have um, audiences or you know Muslims who are fatigued, right? They're they're mentally fatigued by what they encounter either at the mosque or in other Muslim spaces. And so it's an interesting thing to try and think about you know, what is it that lights your fire again and makes you reconnect or at least consider, you know, like open your mind towards something. And if you're watching this, then that means that you have been with us, you're familiar with what we're doing. So I invite anyone in the audience to please, if you have any thoughts, any ideas, um, any feedback, um, I would love to know it. Um, I think one of the things that we as Muslims, um, you know, as, you know, as a collective need to better understand is, you know, who, who are we? Um, what, what, do we respond to and how can we you know better help our you know our ummah or our people um, and especially those people who have felt very disenchanted um, by Islam and certainly turned off by by the Quran so um, that's what we're here to do is to try and you know rekindle the love and um, and provide the knowledge that you know the quality that people are not getting elsewhere so that is it thank you so much I'm so excited to continue with our journey into Surah Baqarah thank you for joining us بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه الطواب إحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلو العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي علي عظيم طيب I think where we left off in سورة البقرة uh, is uh, around وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطَةً This is 143 and 144. Uh, and we, we talked about the change of the Qibla, the historical context around, um, and especially the polemics surrounding the, the issue of the change of the Qibla, um, and where we left off is that Quranic expression that we have made you 
Ummat al-Wasata, which is, can be translated as a middle nation, as a moderate nation, and as I as, um, discussed, that al-Wasat, um, in the even in the, in the very earliest reports, the linguistic reports about what was understood by this, as I said, was al-khayr, al-adl, and al-fadl, uh, goodness, justice, and virtue. Um, and as we talked about the and, I think this is where we are discussion and the challenge is that concepts if if that expression wasat is to be meaningful then it always has to be uh, it's a relation it's a relational uh, dynamic uh, you can't be the middle of something or a moderation of something without that concept relating to an existing evolving reality. And we've talked about examples of this. I mean, so concepts of justice and virtue and um, goodness uh, although anchored in a textual, textual norm it's a it's a textually it's a textual obligation but working through the meanings and the nuances of that um, as the Quran itself alerts our attention that it is not just the kitab as a text but the hikmah but wisdom and as we said that wisdom al-hikmah was always defined as al-ilm al-daruri necessary knowledge whatever that necessary knowledge is okay so all of this is just review from the, where we left off um There, there is a around one. Uh, there is a minor point. You know, sometimes we, when we, these qualifications, minor or major point, what strikes you at a, as a minor point at, at, at some point in your own research could change, and then you realize that this wasn't that minor anyway, or what you might have thought was a major point. Um, you eventually become convinced that this is actually was not that significant. But uh, around verse 145, um, this is where the, the Quran is basically saying that each of you is your direction, your qibla. And 
there in in the tradition um, in the interpretive uh, tradition that you find around 145 uh, there there is an interesting discussion about the the very concept of Qibla um, when the Quran says that to each of you you have a Qibla and that you will not follow each other's Qibla that basically the direction that has been given to you is a direction that part of the polemics that Muslims in Medina encountered where as I mentioned last time, was the, the, the polemics about, well, you know, the turning away from Qibbat al-Sakhra or the, the rock in Jerusalem as uh, somehow as a form of, a, well, you've abandoned the Abrahamic tradition. That was sort of the polemic in Medina. And the Quran's insistence that, in fact, and directing the 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 uh, narrative at Christians and Jews and saying, no, in fact, you know that turning the gaze towards Mecca is not a, an abandonment of the Abrahamic tradition, but it is indeed a fulfillment of the Abrahamic tradition. And then part of the polemics between Muslims and uh, Christians and Jews in Medina was that Christians, Muslims, I'm sorry, argued that the Dome of the Rock as a Qibla was not according to an actual revelation, but was a, a an in the result of an interpretive tradition either by the rabbis in Judaism um, or Christian scholars, although the idea of a Qibla in, in Christianity, the direction of prayer doesn't really exist, but um, and while Muslims argued that in fact the, the very notion of a Qibla outside of the Islamic revelation and Christianity and Judaism, um, there is no specific divine instruction on that. There is no nothing, an explicit reference somewhere in Revelation that says when you pray, pray in the direction of the Dome of the Rock. And the insistence of Muslims that that was uh, a result of an interpretive process, a historical dynamic in Judaism, um, which evolved a particular narrative about the first temple and the second temple and the destruction of the temple and the diaspora of Jews and so on. While the Quranic revelation about Mecca and sacred space in Mecca from the perspective of Muslims was uh, and, uh, was an, uh, anchored in the entire Abrahamic tradition as a, as a long divine plan that was unfolding. Uh, unfolding.
Um, and part of the charge is to is that you are committed to a historical narrative. How do I explain this? That you are that what what makes you committed to your direction of prayer is the narrative of your suffering and your tragedy and your defeat and the loss and the, your dreams of reclamation or dreams of <clears throat> fulfillment. But that ought not be the basis for directing yourself towards your Lord. That it is self-serving or a corruption of um, uh, divine purposes and the very purpose of religion for religion to be co-opted by a albeit a very tragic historical narrative, but nevertheless a historical narrative. The more re refined, um, you know, so for instance, Ibn Arabi um, in his Futuhat says that when Allah directs Muslims to understanding the Qibla in Zakaba, Allah was freeing Muslims of the burden of history, that normative moral commitments must be anchored on principle rather than loyalty or fidelity to a simple historical narrative. Um, it's a very interesting point. It was never developed fully. I mean, you, you find that uh, there are references here and there to, to to this point, to this polemic, but in my view, there was never a systematic development of that idea as to the difference between, as to the very notion of history as a corrupting element in understanding divine intentionality. Anyway, I just wanted to flag it. Um, but don't want to spend too much time on it because it's, um, okay. So then we encounter 146, um, which we've talked about already and we skipped ahead in an earlier harakah and we talked about that those who were given the book some of them know the book and yet conceal the truth. And this is in reference to precisely the prediction in um, the Injil and Torah of the coming of Muhammad So we talked about this, but let's move on to 148 because there is some when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلِكُلِّ وِجْهَةٌ هُوَ مُوَلِّيهَا فَاسْتَبِقُ الْخَيْرَاتِ This expression 
is quite remarkable. Let's see how Muhammad translates it. For every community faces a direction of its own. Muhammad uh, says, of which God is the focal point. So vie therefore with one another in good works. The reason I posit this is So that expression to each of you in all cases after the Quran says insists that of legitimacy and foundational nature of the Muslim Qibla towards Mecca that this is Mecca unites humanity around the Abrahamic pray, prayer that this becomes the focal sacred space that implies amn, safety and security for all those who turn towards this sacred space. And we've talked about this. But then the Quran comes and when it says each of you has their own direction, in this is an implication of accepting the fact that, and in fact, not just implication, but the Quran specifically says that each of you has a direction. And it will never be the case that you will, there will be a situation where the other will accept your own direction, your own qibla. A clear endorsement of the reality of pluralism and the inevitability of pluralism. There will never be a situation where the other will accept your qibla as there will be or ought not be a situation where you accept the other's qibla. But then what follows right after saying this is فَاسْتَبِقُ khayrat. Okay, so the issue of direction has been resolved and it's resolved on the basis that you will agree to disagree. What follows after that is فَاسْتَبِقُ khayrat, And stabiqul الْخَيْرَاتِ is not just vi, but stabiq is like saying compete with one another, race ahead one another, excel ahead of one another. As to what? As to doing good. And as you would expect, of course, the, in, in the Sufi tradition, there, there's a lot of very wonderful writing about this, just this phrase, فَاسْتَبِقُ khairat. But even in outside the Sufi tradition of Qati Abdul Jabbar and Mughni says that this, this is as if God gave you a license. God issued you a, a suck, a, 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 um, a certified endorsement 
to investigate and understand and pursue the nature of goodness in every time and place. Agreeing to disagree about the Qibla, and the Qibla is not just the direction of prayer, but it is your relationship to sacred space. That will never change. But what you can come together, what you can join one another over, is istibaq al-khayrat. To excel in achieving goodness. Sheikh Muhammad al-Ghazali, Allah rahmu, in, used to say in, in his halakas, used to say in his khutbas, he said it in, in, he wrote, you know, 35 or 36 books, and he said it in, in, in many of his books, that this normative charge in the Quran is as concrete and as compelling in articulating a duty upon a Muslim as any other positive legal command that you can imagine. So when Allah would, you know, say, says, do prayer, we understand this as a positive legal command. But when Allah says khayrat, it is a positive legal command. The difference though, it, in fact, khayrat is a priori, it's more foundational because it, it impacts your entire outlook at life and your entire relationship to normative categories, to everything about what should I do with my existence. And he used to say that it it baffled him, and it, you know he was writing in the 70s and 80s, and nothing has changed, sadly. For a Muslim to live their life and accept the idea that they are not at the very forefront of doing what is good. When I would say long time ago, you know, I, when I, one of the things that I always did in, when I worked in Human Rights Watch, and as I mentioned before, you know, I was on the board of directors of Human Rights Watch, and, and everyone around me was, um, any Muslim I encountered in Human Rights Watch was highly secular. I mean, secular meaning that they they made it a point to communicate that they're they're not Muslim. Um, um, yeah, I was the only Muslim that I've encountered in Human Rights Watch that doesn't drink, for instance, or that would excuse himself uh, in meetings to go pray. Um, Yeah, I mean, so, some of the people born Muslim would even 
I, I've, I've, I've caught like a couple, two Muslims, and like when I said I, I have to uh, go pray, like they looked at each other and smiled, like, you know, look at this idiot type thing. But I would always say in Human Rights Watch that my, where I learned that I am obligated to work in this field, and the same for the work I do in human trafficking, was not from anything I learned uh, in college. It's actually learned what I learned from Fastabiqul Khairat. Because God obligated me to be at the head of the curve in doing what is good. And this is not an abstract, so you know, I, I've mentioned before Ibn Abdul Salam, the famous uh, faqih, Shafi faqih, who said that you know, if you go into a town, and that town is plagued by fornication, and people are having fornicating left and right or adultery, and you decide to talk about prayer, then you've betrayed God. Istibaq al khayrat to to excel in doing good, to, to compete in goodness, cannot be defined in abstraction. It must be defined in relation to the bad that exists and in relation to what other good is being achieved. So if I want to be at the head of the curve uh, to fulfill God's command, is tabak al-khayrat, It, you know, if other people are working to achieve certain humane conditions, um, I mean, to be even very concrete, let's say the humane conditions uh, in, in a prison, to that every prison cell uh, would not be overcrowded and overcrowded in the context in which I find myself in, is defined as one person within a cell of a certain size. I can't come in and talk about prison rights in abstraction. I have to understand the actual issues that are being achieved on the ground in order to say that I am excelling in the achievement of goodness. So, you know, I can't suddenly come in and say, well, um, uh, I want to make sure that prisoners are not thrown in a dungeon for 10 years without ever seeing the light. It, in the context of the United States, everyone look at you like an idiot. What are you talking about? Who's thrown in a dungeon for 10 years without seeing the light? If I want to do istibak al-khairat in the context I'm in, I have to anchor myself in the reality that exists. But sadly, I think Sheikh Muhammad al-Ghazali, a lot of Muslims think istibak al-khayrat is to simply pray extra rakahs, to maybe fast the sunnah. But the command to istibak al-khayrat was given to Muslims and non-Muslims alike. 
you pray extra rakahs, you fast extra days, well, that's wonderful. But that doesn't compete in, in the... That's not vying with one another in achieving goodness because your prayers have nothing to do with the other. The fact that Muslims are not at the head of the curve and notice that this ayah comes right after Allah talks us about an Ummah Wasat that bears testimony on the other. So it is as if Allah is saying in order to be able to do that, you must understand the process of istibaq al-khayrat itself. And you must anchor yourself in the realities of istibaq al-khayrat. The pursuit of virtue, but being ahead of the curve, actually being the pioneers of virtue where you are. You know, in, in this day and age, there are so many things, I mean, take the, the absence of any serious Muslim contribution or thinking about a very serious problem in our modern age. The relationship between poverty, loss of values, the breakup of families, social media, and pornography. I can point to contributions by Christians, I can point to contributions by Jews, but I can't point to any serious contribution by Muslims beyond polemics. It's easy to just sit and say haram, 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 but to actually contribute something that would benefit a Muslim or non-Muslim alike, benefit humanity. That's the nature of a khairat. Khairat is that goodness to accrues to, to the benefit of all. Then next, let's go to 151. كَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا فِيكُمْ رَسُولًا مِنْكُمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْكُمْ آيَاتِنَا وَيُزَكِّيكُمْ وَيُعَلِّمُكُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَيُعَلِّمُكُمْ مَا لَمْ تَكُونُوا تَعْلَمُونَ The um, 151 well um, the, we don't really need the translation for this one but again notice that again right after we get the discourse on the direction of the Qibla the insistence that Muslims follow this Qibla because it is a from the perspective of uh, Islamic belief, it is the foundational Qibla and the original Qibla. It is not a Qibla that resulted through a, a, a historical loss or the memory of a historical loss, but a Qibla that is founded in the uh, supplication of the Prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail. But then clearly saying that this is something that you will agree to disagree on. And after the charge for Muslims to bear witness and be the ummah of, 
al-khair wal-fadl wal-adl be the ummah of goodness and justice, etc. And the charge to istibaq al-khairat, Allah comes back again and reminds us that what this Prophet came, delivered to us, is the revelation, and once again we have al-hikmah. Once again, we have that core value. And as I said last halakha, I don't want to repeat the entire discussion of last halakha, but a great deal is written on, because Al al-Hadith insisted that when Allah says, al-kitab, well, that's understood, revelation, and insisted that when Allah says al-hikmah, and hadith insisted that that meant a sunnah, sunnah al-Nabi. That it is the, the hadith, basically. Whether usulis or not necessarily Mu'tazila, but rationalists like Razi, for instance, or Al-Mataridi in his tafsir, or Mu'tazilis like Zamakhshari or Qadi Abdul Jabbar, or Sufis like Ibn Arabi or Jilani. In all these schools, they took Al Hikmah not as a reference to the Sunnah, but as a reference to the necessity of an epistemological understanding that accompanies the Qur'an, that as, as uh, um, um, it's actually in, in Imam al-Ghazali in Zahiyya al-Yunuddin, he says, a person not anchored in hikmah will corrupt the Qur'an. And how do you get hikmah? Al-Ghazali in al-Yunuddin says, having knowledge of what's, what must be known in your age to fulfill the demands of al-birr and birr for now, let's just, for now because we'll, we'll uh, um, Surah al-Baqarah will deal with al-birr but for now let's just say virtue to fulfill the demands of al-birr wal-adl to fulfill the demands of virtue and justice. So, someone like Ghazali in his says, well, if, if you're actually not trained in al-hikmah, you will inevitably corrupt the Quran. The reason I flag this again is because I've noticed among Muslim youth, um, especially in the United States, every time I've seen someone comment about al-hikmah, um, in the Quran generally, but in Surah Al-Baqarah more specifically, they've always adopted the Ahl al-Hadith position, that it just means a sunnah, that you've been given the Quran and the sunnah. It would be clearly a misrepresentation to assume that that's the orthodox position. That's clearly the Ahl al-Hadith position. But it's also the position clearly rejected by Usulis, rejected by um, even Sufis. 
uh, not as an anti-hadith position, obviously not. That's not because you're rejecting the sunnah or... But because the word al-hikmah itself, to say it means a sunnah, what evidence exists for that? What evidence hikmah as, as linguistic practice was a word known to those who received the Quran at the time it was received? And when Allah says, obey Allah and the Prophet, well, then that brings in the, the corpus of the Sunnah and the Hadith because of the command to obey the Prophet. So, okay, what does obeying the Prophet mean? But when Allah says al-Hikmah, it takes a certain twisting of the arms of language to say, well, al-Hikmah just means a Sunnah and nothing more. Although, oddly enough, even among Sufi circles in the United States, uh, I, I found I found them also defining al-Hikmah as the Sunnah of the Prophet, which um, surprised me because it's I think that's just um, something I've actually never encountered except in the U.S. The, the voice of, uh, of the guys here constantly telling me, don't skip anything, don't rush, don't, it keeps haunting me because I, 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 I really do want to move forward and moving forward means skipping things. And so I always have that internal struggle between um, so, okay, so I won't skip. Because then, after the halakha, I have to pay, um, you know, <laughs> they pick on me for it, you know. The, the, well, we could tell you were rushing. We, you know, so, so. Okay, so notice that you have al-kitab and al-hikmah. And tazkiyah. وَيُزَكِّكُمْ and Tazkiyah. Now, Tazkiyah, there are many ways to translate Tazkiyah. You could say Tazkiyah is to purify you, to cleanse you, to um, um, uh, put you in better moral standing. Uh, there, let's, let's see how Muhammad Asad translated it. Um, Yeah, he says, to cause you to grow in purity. But, let me just say that this one word, has inspired a considerable amount of writing, especially in the Sufi tradition, and in the philosophical tradition. Tazkiyah to nafs, to purify the self. Okay, so that the Prophet wants to teach you purity of the self. But Tazkiyah as immoral status, 
so that you purify not just your body, but you purify your soul, you purify your intellect. What does that mean? And so you find Qadi Abdul Jabbarai has a long discussion about the concept of Tazkiyah, but I want to come at it from a different angle. Notice that right after Allah reminds us of this, Al-Kitab, Wal-Hikmah, Wal-Tazkiyah, you get 152. The Prophet ﷺ, we have a number of hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says something to the effect that a human being who doesn't remember Allah um, is like a living corpse, like a zombie, basically. There's another that says a mouse that doesn't occupy itself with dhikrullah is like a rotted, is like a, a, a rotted hole or a rotted, um, um, yeah, or a rotted cave, maybe even you could translate it, a hole in a, in a mountain line. Um, But that, that simple expression, فَذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ Now, you, there's a whole range of hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ reports that Allah says that if a person remembers me in themselves, meaning silently, I remember them in myself. And if a, member, a person remembers me uh, uh, out loud, I remember them out loud. And if a person re- mentions me in public, I mention them fi mala. So if you mention Allah in a group, then I mention this person in a group in al mala al-ala, in the heavens. So that, that reciprocity, that relationship of reciprocity in which, in the same way that you are given the volition and the charge, you are given the instructions, but the extent to which you are present in the divine reality, I hesitate to say a divine mind because of various reasons, but in the present, in the divine reality, is placed squarely in your hand. As I said before, you could be a rock star in Al Mala Al Ala, or you could be a rock star in heaven and nobody in. in you could be a rock star on earth, but nobody up there. Or you could be nobody on earth and a rock star up there. So it is placed squarely in your hand. It is difficult 
for the modern mind to understand the historical impact of the simple textual empowerment given to the lay person. Zikrullah lak, Allah's, your place in Allah's mind, so to speak, doesn't depend on the sacrifices you present to a priestly class, and it doesn't depend on the fees you pay to a church, and it doesn't depend on sacraments or what other rituals that you engage in with a priestly class. That relationship is direct and unobstructed and unmediated. Uzkuruni azkurku. It's as simple as that. And of course, you can probably predict how Zik became the pulse of Teskia for instance, in the entire Sufi tradition. In the entire Sufi tradition, what Tazkiyah to Nafs is entirely premised on the dynamics of Zikr. And the greater your Zikr, the greater the act of grace where Allah actually purifies you. But I want to take this to a, a bit of a different orientation because of what I mentioned at the beginning of last halakha. I believe, Allahu alam, but I believe that yes, the Sufis are absolutely right that the skiyat nafs is premised on dhikr. But I want to also suggest to you that tazkiyatul aql also depends on dhikr, not, not exclusively, but a necessary element of the purification of the intellect is your dhikr. For virtue to become meaningful from an Islamic perspective, you must first be aware of virtue as anchored in al-khayrat, fastabiq al-khayrat, and virtue as anchored in the very concept of wasatiyya, ummatan wasatan. But how do you get at understanding this virtue? A purely intellectual process is never sufficient. So my one of my big disagreements, for instance, was a philosopher like Hassan Hanafi, who passed away recently. He's an Egyptian philosopher who's written a lot about Islamic philosophy. He's written many, many volumes. Is that precisely this element? I think that when we analyze the Qur'an while ignoring while, while 
abandoning the insistence that whoever discourses upon Islamic virtue, Islamic morality, Islamic ethics, um, must be anchored in a pietistic practice, not a pietistic performance done in public, but that they would satisfy me that this is not a pure process of mathematical analytical deduction, but and the closest thing I, I you know, Sheikh Ghazali in Hialumuddin, a thoroughly pietistic discourse, but also a rationalistic discourse. Even Ibn Rushd, a, a counterexample would be Ibn Sina. Uh, but even Ibn Sina has m more piety than a lot of modern Muslim writers that attempt to quote-unquote reform Islam. Um, Zikr is the pulse of everything Islamic. فَذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ Even at level of an ummah, I, if I talk about goodness in society, I also must talk about facilitating zikr in society. Whatever it can be, not to force people to do zikr, because that, that's entirely corrupting. The minute you compel people, you've corrupted it. But to make the space facilitate the process for those who, and encourage in public space, encourage the dynamics of the meaning the remembrance of Allah. Um, there is a huge difference between encouragement and compulsion. Okay. Now, of course, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اسْتَعِينُوا بِالصَّبْرِ وَالصَّلَاةِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ الصَّابِرِينَ Which follows right after أُذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ The process of dhikr itself Look at it, it's just, it's, it's like a chain. The process of dhikr itself is not possible without perseverance and patience. Most people who do not understand the sweetness of dhikr is because they despaired. They tried it for a bit, they lost patience, they move on. But right after this, the Surah Al-Baqarah will talk about qital about waging war. Those who wage war, who fight in God's cause, without that fighting being anchored in dhikr, they've secularized their struggle and their warfare. In the same way that the purification of the soul needs dhikr, 
the purification of the intellect needs zikr. Even the purification of warfare itself needs zikr. But we'll talk about Ayat al-Qital after we pray Maghrib, inshallah. Um, Ayat al-Qital is at 154. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I was talking to uh, Rami um, and just about this, uh, this, um, he, reminded me that the the idea that in order uh, that the, the teacher of virtue must be a practitioner of virtue uh, is it's very old and the the idea of the purity of the heart that truth uh, is not accessible except for those who purify their heart, so that the, the purity of the heart can mirror the the truth. Um, I mean, all of that in terms of systems of knowledge is, is quite old. It even predates Islam back to the Greek tradition. Um, on the other hand, the idea that a the, the intellect can function analytically uh, denying its commitments, sort of an an amoral uh, uh, um, at a distance from all commitments, analyzing the truth, which is something is is a very modern phenomenon, and particularly Western modern. Phenomena. So, and uh, we suffer from it, especially in in the in a field like Islamic studies, immensely. Um, the notion that you cannot be a good scholar of Islam, you cannot be a good scholar of Islamic history, unless you are not a Muslim, or at a minimum, at a minimum not a practicing Muslim, or that you cannot be a good scholar of Islamic philosophy unless you are not a Muslim or, at a minimum, not a practicing Muslim. Um, uh, it, 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 which, interestingly, you know, when I compare the, the way these notions are very dominant in the field of Islamic studies to um, um, the, the uh, to Jewish studies, um, for instance, uh, it, it's quite different. Um, in, in Jewish studies, it, it doesn't. It, in fact, uh, I mean, every discussion I had was uh, a Jewish philosopher. It was with a person who's committed to the Jewish tradition, who is heart and soul um, anchored in the Jewish tradition. And that's a point of pride and a point of uh, a part of the legitimacy of their discourse about their own tradition. Well, of course, in, in the Islamic field, it's quite the opposite, as any student of Islamic studies will, will tell you. Um, if you're a Muslim, um, you have a much harder time getting a job in Islamic history, in Islamic theology, in Islamic philosophy, 
the idea is that you can't be a believer to, if you are going to investigate the truth. And they tell you, we're here to teach religion, not preach religion. Um, well, which, of course, a, a, a dumbing down of the issues because you can be a fervent believer without preaching anything. Uh, a part of your skill as a believer is to be able to argue against the self and to, um, which is, you know, something that you learn in, in law school, that to adopt the opposite view and argue, but, but essentially that goes part, part again to that notion of tuskia and purification and law. I don't trust someone who comes and tells me I'm going to educate you on the secrets of the Quran who is not uh, who I am not sufficiently satisfied that this person is anchored in in the more in in the piety of the Quran itself because that process of purification um, that concept of Tazkiyah as a necessary for Hikmah as a, as a, a an constituent element of Hikmah uh, is very important okay let's um, and then so as we said before we uh, um, stop for prayer that In Surah Al-Baqarah, then you have the interjection, وَلَا تَقُولُوا لِمَنْ يُقْتَلَوْا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أَمْوَاتٌ بَلْ أَحْيَاءٌ عِنْدُ وَلَكِنْ لَا تَشْعُرُونَ That don't say those who were killed in God's cause are dead, but they are alive, but you do not feel. Now, there is a... a discussion that you find in the tradition that has become uh, virtually extinct. You, and it became extinct, I think, around the 5th century Hijra, um, 10th, 11th. And the discussion was whether when Allah says that they don't say that they are dead, but they are in fact alive, but you do not, you're not aware of it. There are a number of hadiths that talk about how a martyr is alive and enjoying all the pleasures of heaven, etc., etc. But there, there are issues, many different difficult issues about these hadiths that, and the part of the discourse that you don't encounter after the fifth century hijra is whether the reference to those who die in God's cause being alive, um, is it literal or symbolic? Are they alive in the sense of morally alive? That in fact, in this, in, or even in a philosophical sense, that death itself is an illusion, that death is but a, an interruption before resurrection, and that as a, as a matter of deskia, as a matter of honor, as a matter of ultimate truth, that in fact they you 
you only imagine they're dead when you um, uh, fail to understand the nature of death itself. Or whether it's literal, that they are in fact meaning that they are, they, they go on to in, enjoying uh, the pleasures of heaven. And as I'm sure you know, that the literal interpretation and the one that becomes the dominant one and the one that becomes, uh, the, the one that all Muslims learn today. But in any case, Surah Al-Baqarah, the revelation of Surah Al-Baqarah covers a period from the Battle of Badr to the Battle of Uhud onto to Ghazwat al-Khandaq to the Battle of the Trench or uh, Ghazwat al-Ahzab, the, the, um, the, the Meccan alliance against Muslims in Medina. And so the narrative of Surah al-Baqarah covers the fact that there now became an actual call to arms in the Muslim Ummah. And that martyrdom, people dying in battle, became a reality. Um, and that is why it is immediately followed by acknowledging the dire difficulties that Muslims in Medina were confronting. That it is the course of things that if you commit yourself to the path of Tazkiyah, the path of purification, the path of standing in truth, bearing witness for God, that you must be tested with hunger, uh, financial need, um, the, the test of having to sacrifice the self, and of course, Allah praises those who persevere. Part of a narrative that we do not hear um, in, especially in Islam in the West, as much of, although it, it still exists and in my days, at least in Islam, outside, in, in Muslim countries, uh, I, I don't know about now because things have changed from the days that I was growing up. But the the fact that the, the necessity of suffering as an educational mechanism for the possibility of teskia, of purification, and understanding truth, that suffering and enduring pain 
persevering through pain, not numbing pain and not avoiding pain, is a necessary element in constructing the self that is capable of purification and capable of wisdom and capable of understanding this book. Um, this b deserves considerable emphasis because of how often it is emphasized on the Quran repeatedly. If you put yourself, if you, if you have the aspiration of being close to Allah and the aspiration of tazkiyah, of purification, and the aspiration of this closeness to the divine, translating into umur, into an illumination within the self as within the intellect that itself yields levels of wisdom and levels of real piety. And the reason I emphasize this element of pain because in modern culture, our attitude towards pain is that it is like a disease that must be cured. That we are raised that if you have depression, well, numb it. Take medicine, get rid of it. If you have anxiety, well, numb it. Take medicine to get rid of it. If you have pain, well, take painkillers to numb it, to get rid of it. At depression, anxiety, we are not taught the skills of, under, because it is a skill, of uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? In taking in that depression, taking in that anxiety, taking in this pain, living through it, not avoiding it, not numbing it, but persevering through it and translating it into tools that educate you and elevate you and make you grow. So, anxiety is a, is a great educator. Depression is a great educator. For one thing, it teaches you that you have to have the willpower to make decisions to alter your condition. That stewing in self-loathing or self-pity is a fundamentally immoral failure in your relationship with Allah. So although my mother was a psychologist, I remember very vividly that my mother would always talk to us about, you know, if whenever we talked to her about being depressed about something, being anxious about something, or even when we've gone through periods where we've 
I mean, I, I'm just surprised at how easily people get prescribed pain, pain pills here. Um, I remember even uh, some situations where, you know, you, we sustained serious physical injury or illness. And my mother would always say, learn from it, persevere through it. Um, if you are depressed, analyze your depression. And what does it tell you about yourself? If you're anxious, analyze, analyze, analyze your relationship with Allah. And what does it tell you about your relationship with God? What does it, what does it tell you about whether you, how you trust God or how you understand God or how you relate to God's will? And also pain. What does it tell you about your body? And what does it tell you about... If, so for instance, my, I remember my mother would always say, would every feel pain say, pain is what teaches you empathy. Translate that pain into understanding the agony of the other. Of course, she, she expressed it in very um, colloquial terms. Um, when I came to the United States, I found a very different culture. Depression, pill. Anxiety, pill. Um, uh, pain, pill. Um, talking about Anxiety, or I, I remember when when uh, uh, when I once shared some of my upbringing with what was one of my doctors, and he reacted to it with horror. Like I was just from you know a retarded backwards culture that just doesn't understand um, the wisdom of Western technology. You know that's ridiculous. Why should you endure anxiety, or why should you endure depression, or why should you endure pain? Uh, of course, these are things that we just get rid of. We, we, what do you mean you, you want to learn from it, or what do you mean you want to endure it, and so on? Um, because does it make a difference? Absolutely. Personally, after all these years studying the Quran, I have come to the conviction that some of the greatest insights that you get into the Quran are at these moments in your life where you are the most depressed and moments in your life where you are the most anxious. And yes, moments in your life where you've committed that you're not going to take an oxy pill, you're not going to take a painkiller, but so no chemicals to deal with painkillers. So what recourse do you have? Well, you try to recite the Quran to overcome the pain. And then some of the insights you get when you are in the midst of pain into Allah's wisdom are mind-blowing. We could say much more about this, but let's move on. Um, but notice 
something that the Prophet ﷺ teaches is a cure to exactly the things that we are talking about. الذين إذا أصابتهم مصيبة قالوا إن لله وإن إليه راجعون. This is this expression has had an enormous impact on the Islamic civilization and on Islamic culture. Whenever a Muslim suffers a hardship, a death, bad news, disaster, they say إن لله وإن إليه راجعون. Which means that we are, we belong to God, and to God we shall return. Now, of course, sadly, there are many Muslims in the modern age that repeat this out of habit. It doesn't resonate, doesn't mean anything. But that expression, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon, is a great teacher. We are from God and to God we shall return. Because every time you suffer a calamity, regardless of the size of the calamity, you reflect on the reality, the reality of life, and your position in that life. Um, One of the, uh, he wasn't my, um, he's a, a sheikh that I met who had, but like these people of old, um, you know, my, my mother had colon cancer. She never, she refused to take uh, any painkillers, even when she broke her ribs several times. You know, she absolutely refused to take any pain pills. And like, uh, like my mother, um, I've met the stories that I can tell you about uh, pious people and the way that they handle pain, all types of pain, not just physical pain, but um, emotional pain, the loss of children, the loss of spouses, the loss of parents, the loss of um, uh, their wealth. My, my mother worked for 30 years and then she lost her entire savings, her entire retirement fund in one big swoop. And I will never forget her, re her reaction was, and that was it. And, you know, when you, you see the way people relate to, to calamity in, um, in secularized contexts. Um, what was, oh, yeah, that, that sheikh that I, um, he had um, a form of cancer. I didn't ask what type of cancer, but we all knew that he was dying of cancer. And he lived um, in one of the old neighborhoods near, near Azhar. And um, I remember that I asked his son, because when we went to visit him, and he, came, he was constantly muttering, and I asked his son, why, why does he keep saying that? Um, 
I thought that, anyway, so his son said it's because he's in pain. And saying that is his painkiller. And that stuck in my mind, stayed with me. Um, Subhanallah. Okay. الذين إذا أصابتهم مصيبة قالوا إن لله وإن إليه راجعون أولئك عليهم صلوات من ربهم ورحمة وأولئك هم المهتدون. so those who upon being inflicted with calamity say we are from God and to God we will return. upon those are صلوات. they are blessings. And upon them is a mercy from their Lord. And they are the truly guided. This tells you that it is not, as Al-Ghazali says, it is not uttering the statement just as a, a, a an act of the mouth and the tongue. But it is an entire internalization and conscientious, being conscious of what the statement is. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raja'un. To be worthy of that status, that you will have blessings and mercy, and that you are the truly guided, means a training into consciousness of what inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raja'un means not simply uttering it out of habit or as a mere formality. Okay. Okay. Then, as Surah Al-Baqarah does, we, we all went, we all reviewed together how Surah Al-Baqarah starts out with a major theological premise. The idea of a chosen people and the idea of merit upon which or who are the meritorious people and why. But then Surah Al-Baqarah for from that point keeps going back and forth between addressing specific circumstance that confront Muslims in Medina and contextualizing this circumstance into a larger spiritual picture. So repeatedly, it will, as we will see, it will say something about an actual issue that confronted them and then it draws back again and reminds Muslims that although God gives addresses a, a particularity of a problem or an issue or a challenge that confronted them constantly reminding them that they cannot deal with the mechanics of a problem without reverting back consistently to the larger spiritual principles. 
So after having addressed this sort of larger issue of or these, the, these larger spiritual questions of the fact that you are the, the, the role of dhikr, the, the process of teskiya, the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the role of pain and hardship and so on, um, and in and in your relationship with the divine, then it comes to a specific issue that had confronted Muslims. Inna al-Safa wal Marwa min Sha'airillah. فمن حج البيت أو اعتمر فلا جناح عليه أن يطوف بهما ومن تطوع خيرا فإن الله شاكر عليم. This is one Safa and Marwa are, of course, the two mountains or uh, mountain tops in, in Mecca are among the symbol. Muhammad Asad says symbols set up by God or rituals of God. Um, and and so there is no blame or one who visits a Safa Marwa is not to blame. So Muhammad as it says, and thus no wrong does he who having gone to the Kaaba on pilgrimage or on a pious visit to Umrah strides to and fro between these two. For if one does more good than he, than he is bound to do, behold God is responsive to gratitude all-knowing. The reason for this ayah, for this revelation, as reported by Aisha and other companions, is that the natives of the Medina, the Ansar, when they would visit Mecca, they, they, the, the Medina, like other Arabs outside of Mecca, held the Kaaba in reverence and believed that the Kaaba was the was the foundation of the Kaaba was laid by the Prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail however they would abstain from visiting the Safa al Marwa the both the Aus and the Khazraj had there are two different reports. Some said that they would abstain from visiting them because um, there was a great deal of um, immoral conduct taking place between the Safa and Marwa. And by immoral conduct, we some said that there were uh, kinking, drinking taverns that were built between Safa and Marwa, and there was prostitution and drinking. Other reports said no. It had nothing to do with the drinking taverns and prostitution um, between Safa and Marwa, but it had to do with a superstitious belief on part of the Medinians that you visit that the, the Kaaba is blessed, but the Safa, the area between the Safa and Marwa, is cursed. And so that they would refrain from visiting them. 
And the Quran basically comes in and negates or says, no, in fact, uh, they are included in the sacred space. Later on, the Quran will actually incorporate them specifically in Hajj. But bin Sha'airillah, that they are, they have been incorporated as part of sacred space that Allah sees as commendable if you visit this area. Now, the, the reason I flag this, although it's a historical curiosity, because obviously no Muslim now, um, uh, and after this revelation, um, there there is a man that came to Aisha, there's a, this is, um, who told her, well, doesn't Allah say, um, فَمَنْ حَجَّ الْبَيْتَ وَعَطَمَرْ فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَطَّوَّفَ بِهُمَا who tells Aisha that, well, doesn't Allah say that if you go to Hajj or you go to Umrah, then there is no blame upon you if you visit them. And this man then told Aisha, I don't remember the name of the of the man, um, uh, doesn't this mean that they're not? it's not obligatory to visit the Safa al-Marwa and Hajj or Umrah? Because it says there's no blame upon you if you visit them. And Aisha responds very sharply to that and says, absolutely not. This is not what the ayah is saying because the Prophet ﷺ said that they are a part of the obligatory or part of the completion of Hajj and Umrah. But the reason I emphasize this is for a later point that has to do with the laws that Surah Al-Baqarah talks about. Surah Al-Baqarah, all the laws it addresses arose within its context of historical dynamics that existed in Medina including even what it says about the Safa al Marwa. It keeps addressing particular laws because of particular circumstances that came up in Medina, but then constantly goes back and reminds you of the foundational principles guiding these laws. The laws themselves are not the foundational principles. One of the methodological errors, in my opinion, in approaching the laws in Surah Al-Baqarah and elsewhere is assume it's conflating the moral principle with the law that is an, an anecdotal fulfillment of the moral principle, but a fulfillment under the circumstances that existed at the time. In this situation, 
the Quran disabuses the Medinians of what I believe, because I, I think the reports about their, their conviction about the Safa Marwa being their mythology uh, about a curse attaching you if you visit to Safa Marwa and so on, of that mythology and says, no, they, they are among the Sha'ir Baitullah. So clearly, they are incorporated among the sacred space of the divine. Um, and So, after addressing that, it goes to another issue. Note here: Inna al-ladina yaktumuna ma anzalna min al-bayinati wal-huda min baad ma bayinahu lil-nasi fi al-kitab. Ulaika yalanum Allah wa yalanum al-la'inun. Illa al-ladina tabu wa aslahu. وبينوا فأولئك أتوب عليهم وأنا التواب الرحيم إن الذين كفروا وماتوا وهم كفار أولئك عليهم لعنة الله والملائكة والناس أجمعين. So this is up to 161. So right after this articulation about the Safa Mara, behold, as for those who suppress uh, the evidence of truth and of guidance which we've given you or bestowed upon you after we've made it clear unto mankind through the divine writ those are the, the ones that God will reject and whom all who can judge will reject um, Muhammad Asa translates Yal'an as reject. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Um, and and he, he, uh, he, he, I know why he does that, because la'an, um, uh, among the meanings of la'ana is to, um, is to distance or to uh, exile. Ib'ad. And so he probably, instead of translating lan as curse, he thought, well, it's probably the Quran means that it is a form of condemnation that doesn't rise to the level of curse, which is acceptable. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. Okay, but anyway. Um, Accepted, however, shall be those who repent and put themselves to right and make known the truth, and it is those whose repentance I shall accept, for I alone am the acceptor of repentance and the dispenser of grace. Fine. Then, moving on. Behold, as to for those who are bent on denying the truth and die as deniers of truth, their due is rejection, is that, again, rejection by God and by the angels, and by all who are righteous. So, one, there was two things. Part of 
the issue that confronted Muslims in Medina is that some of the those who had accepted Islam from the natives in Medina were having a difficult time accepting old well-established traditions long-held systems of belief such as and as odd as it sounds to us today that we people of Yathrib unlike the Meccans we don't pay attention to Safa al Marwa because it is haunted by jinn. Safa al Marwa didn't look like they look today, you know, all um, um, with uh, marble floors and lightning and air conditioning, and you know, they were um, look quite different as you can imagine. I actually wish that they preserved their historical. Character. I mean, I, I when I, I actually didn't like it when I went and it was all lit and air conditioned and uh, there were marble flooring. It's just it's not anyway. So that once the revelation and as a point of order that once Allah comes and says you must abandon your long-held mythologies that those who would still insist on their position were in, in serious trouble. Other commentators said that this ayah goes back to talking about the polemics between the, particularly the Jewish tribes and the idea of Muhammad as the awaited Messiah, or the Muhammadah, as, as I, we've talked about, that there, it is, there's clear evidence that part of the polemics is that if he was a true prophet, he would... he would have not turned away from Jerusalem and not just turned away from Jerusalem, but he even tells you that Safa al-Marwa, which you people of Yathrib have long known to be uh, outside the pale of the sacred, he comes in and he says now, that, and of course the issue was, it, it's, it's because of Hagar. That Sava al Marwa are revered by Muslims today, who the significance of Sava al Marwa is that Hagar runs between these two mountaintops, and then Zemzem, she, God answers her prayers by the uh, um, wellspring of Zemzem breaking out. And as we saw in the Bible, there is an acknowledgement of Zamzam. But there is, from a biblical perspective, a dislike of Hagar. And 
So the, the genesis of that historical mytholo mythological issue and the involvement of Jewish tribes uh, trying to influence uh, Medinians, natives, uh, is, well, you know, this is what Hagar did. And how could something that Hagar did be a part of the sacred? I mean, okay, fine, she, it, 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 the, uh, the, your narratives say that she ran back and forth, and also Zemzem itself is mentioned in the Bible, but there is no mention of Zemzem being gifted because of Hagar's activity, because of Hagar's prayer. Now, there is an a, a interesting report that I found in which um, the sort of the, the it is reported or it's, it's narrated without an isnad that um, so if it wasn't, if Zamzam wasn't because of the prayers of Hagar, so why, if, if the Bible says God, the text that we read, that an acknowledgement of Zamzam as a gift. Ismail was too young. It's theologically problematic to say that it was because of Ibrahim's prayer, because if you recall what the Bible says is that Ibrahim sends off Hagar and Ismail into the desert, but doesn't accompany them, right? So if it's not Hagar, and the Bible says that it was a blessing, then as a result of whose prayer? And that report said that the response that was given is that, well, it was an act of grace by, by, by God, but not in any way a sanctification of Hagar or uh, a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Anyway, you get the point. That it is, it is not way an honoring of Hagar or an honoring of Ismail, but simply an act of grace by God. So, so it's very interesting that you know you get it um, now. But this is the historical part. But notice when we get to sixty-one. <laughs> So those who reject the truth and insist upon rejecting the truth, in other words, they don't repent. So they are, whether condensed, condensed uh, sorry, whether cursed or, or condemned by God, the angels and all people. Commentators paused here because, not because of God's cursing those who reject the truth or the angels cursing those who reject the truth, but because of what the Quran says about Anas. The issue is strangely relevant in the contemporary age, and that is, you've all heard of the, um, when um, 
the 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 whole thing that often comes up in the Islamic community, speaking ill of someone or speaking ill of the dead. There, I mentioned this hadith before. There is hadith reported in in a number of versions, but the 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 essence of it is that. The essence of this hadith is that the Prophet says to a group of people, they they see a a janaza and uh, and then they they speak well of that person who um, who's being buried, and the Prophet says. Um, May Allah accept. And another day, someone is being buried and people speak about, badly about this person who's being buried. And the Prophet says, may Allah accept. He didn't tell those who were speaking ill of the person who died, you shouldn't do so. He told them, in fact, if this person left a bad reputation, then may Allah accept. In other words, may he suffer the consequences of having left a bad reputation. This ties into this ayah because it ignited an entire debate. So, if when Allah says that when nasi ajma'in, let's assume that all people, and here let's assume that the people that were that the Quran is talking about are people who actually knew the deceased, right? Or actually knew the person who rejected the truth and never repented. How does this, how do we reconcile between this and another hadith where a man, for instance, um, um, I'm trying to remember the word. This was a man who apparently was an alcoholic and he would consistently get into trouble and this was before the um, the punishment for the had for drinking alcohol, but he was consistently getting into trouble in Medina because of his drinking. So one of the companions commented about this man, said, I think it's something like أكثر ما يشرب. So may Allah curse him. How much? How often this man gets? How much this guy drinks? And the Prophet responded to this and said, لا تكونوا عونا للشيطان على أخيكم. Don't curse him, so that you, so because you should not be 
with shaitan, don't help shaitan against your brother. So the tension here is between the traditions that tell you don't condemn someone and the traditions that seem to say you should condemn moral conduct even if the person had died. So in other words, if someone committed immorality and died, you should say that this person has been immoral, not cover it up. And those who were of emergia inclination, those who tended to say, don't speak ill of the dead, you don't know what is in people's hearts, so don't condemn behavior, said that this ayah means that human beings will condemn the behavior, will curse the behavior in the hereafter, not on earth. While the majority said that no, while the Prophet creates a moral imperative that instead of condemning people, you help people. Instead of condemnation, assistance. But as to those who insist on doing wrong and do so defiantly, and especially those who die having been in the wrong, in other words, people who die with ill repute, it is absolutely necessary to condemn them as an educational or as upholding the truth. That if people fail to condemn what is immoral, that ultimately truth that dilutes the truth itself. I bring this up because I, I didn't remember it when I talked uh, the, the, in the khutbah about someone dying and whether you talk about what they've done that's wrong or not. I am with the with the side or of the school of thought that says and absolutely part of educating people is that we must be able to talk about what people did that's right and what's wrong while we must be measured and while we must be cautious because it is a great sin to condemn someone without knowledge and it's a great sin to transgress upon someone's reputation without proper foundation and proper evidence. But it is absolutely necessary that those who do wrong, that they be called out from it. You, you, you can't be complicit in wrongdoing by providing a cover for it. Let's go next to 165. 
ومن الناس من يتخذ من دون الله اندادا يحبونهم كحب الله والذين امنوا اشد حبا لله ولو يرى الذين ظلموا اذ يرون العذاب ان القوه لله جميعا وان الله شديد العذاب The reason I'm flagging 165 is because of the be- beginning of this ayah that the, there are people who take and dead and dead are either equals or competitors to Allah anything that you love at Allah's expense is inid lillah if you I mean, to be quite blunt about it, if you, let's say, love your spouse to the point that you will do what's wrong, you will anger God to please your spouse, then your spouse is nidlillah. Same thing for your children, for whoever you love. And that ideal or that principle i don't want to say ideal because it, it it's uh, i i don't mean mean that it is idealistic in the sense of impractical but it is a, an ideal in the sense that it is a principle that your relationship to allah is that you must be that your love love to allah or for Allah, must trump any other nid. So, if a process of where, where a choice has to be made, your commitment to Allah, and especially the love. Now, this ayah, 165, plays a huge role in the Sufi tradition because the entire Sufi trajectory of training people in Irtiqa they tell you that the reason we go on the path of Irtiqa is to is to not be ashaddu khawfan min lillah is not that we fear Allah more so we obey Allah before anyone else, but precisely that principle, that ideal, is to love Allah more. And that, especially in the Sufi literature, you find a great deal of writing about how human beings often claim that they love Allah, but in fact they don't and all the material about that the biggest fallacy of love is that you actually love yourself and then project yourself onto the other which i've talked about in the past a lot clearly it comes from all the sufi writings that that human beings often love themselves and then they project themselves onto god and then they say i love god and in fact they they don't love god they've never loved god they're in love with themselves. In essence, the egoism of the self. 
But even even just beyond the Sufi tradition, which you know delivers or or which develops this point to uh, you know look at how much Ibn Arabi wrote in his Futuhat about this just this area. Uh, um, um, a great deal is written about it um, among Mufassirun like Razi, um, who's not a Sufi, um, or, or Mataridi, um, um, or even Qadi Abdul Jabbar in his Mughni writes about uh, this ayah. Although he, he's, he, he, if I remember correctly, his argument is that to say you love Allah must translate into loving the attributes of divinity. And so, Unless you love Ihsan, love Adl, love Bir, uh, these these vir- these kind of virtues, then your claim that you love Allah is vacuous, is empty. Um, the other reason I flag it is I remember, um, which just tells you where we are as Muslims. I remember I once gave a khutbah in which I, ta- I was talking about um, loving God. And I got an angry email from someone saying, what is your dalil? <laughs> saying, no, in Islam, there is no such thing as loving God, we obey God. So, And what is your dalil that, um, that, that this is a Christian concept and what is your dalil that is Islamic? And of course, you know, I, I had a cow in my khutbah, but it just reminded me. And if you're interested, just listen to my uh, the lecture I gave about love in the Islamic tradition, divine love in the Islamic tradition, and then I think I gave the khutbah, and I spoke about it in some one other occasion, but I don't remember. Do you remember what other occasion it was? I mean, just the lecture at the Islamic Center, quick, several khutbahs. Okay, so there's several there's khutbahs. Several um, oh yeah, and, and also yeah, and search for beauty in the volume. Coming soon. Uh, the, uh, in a chapter in a in a book coming soon, inshallah. <laughs> do you guys have? Do we know the title of the book? Yeah. Okay. Um. So look out for for this book, inshallah, coming soon. Um. Since I doubt it will become a bestseller and be in Barnes and Noble and, um, you know. Yeah. So just look out for it. Uh, where, where were we? Oh, okay. So, yeah, the end dead. Um, and, of course, the... the 166 is Tabara al-Ladina Tab al-Ladina Tubiu Mina Ladina Tabau Rau al-Azaba Watakatad Bihum al-Azbab 
this is uh, 166 because it is interconnected with the idea of undead. So the, when the day comes that those who were followed will how does Muhammad disown those who followed them. Now, the reason I, I, I flag this because, of course, one is connected to the idea of undead, that if you follow someone blindly and loving them blinds you to your commitment to Allah, your love of Allah, some of the most fascinating discussions is again in the Sufi tradition, which if if you love your qutb, you love your your imam, your guide, and you love your guide so thoroughly that it is not clear whether in your heart and in your mind you separate between your love for Allah and your love for your guide. This is sort of a, the, 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 um, the issue that you find some very interesting discussions on, uh, whether the, the love of your guide is a healthy deliverance to the love of your Lord, or whether it is a, a sign of a bad guide. If you are unable to separate between your love towards God and your love towards your uh, sheikh. That's in the Sufi tradition. But, but other than the, the Sufi tradition, whenever you are, follow someone blindly, that's inidlillah. The blind, the blindness of the relationship. So many those jurists, especially the usulis who tended to condemn taqlid, often cite this ayah, one sixty-six. One sixty-six is among the polemics anti-taqlid, anti-imitation ayah. You also find 166 featuring very prominently in the debates on Marja' taqlid in the Shi'i tradition, where you are imitating an ayatollah or an imam What's the difference between ittiba' that is reprehensible and ittiba' that is acceptable. To condemn all ittiba' is as if you are legitimating arrogance because knowledge, learning is not possible without some ittiba', some following. But at the same time, ittiba' can very quickly become 
a form of corruption because you are effectively creating equals to Allah. You are not following Allah, but you are following something that stands between you and Allah. Um, so that's a very big topic. All the discussions about the legitimacy of taqlid, the, 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 the limits of taqlid, I mean, that's a PhD dissertation. It's not something that we can do justice to. But I want to address a different aspect of that. And in the discussions on particularly the type of itibah that is that would fall under the category of the superior commands or the commands of a superior. One of the fields in Sharia is whether commands of a superior can remove responsibility, moral responsibility from upon you. I've published an article about this a long time ago. Um, um, this is the article on uh, duress and coercion in Islamic law, and there is a section on superior commands. To sum up a, a very protracted juristic di discussion, is that superior commands are never an excuse. If what you are commanded to do is clear haram, like kill an innocent person, or a person that you should have known to be innocent, or torturing someone, so if you kill someone without a trial, that, that's a clear example, because you are following the uh, 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 you may, may not, it is not an excuse to say I was following the orders of X, Y, and Z, and that's why I did. The now, this area, I just, it, it, plays a prominent role in this whole discourse. Muhammad Abdu says something in his tafsir that I like. It says, if people would have understood the full import of this one ayah, istabara al-ladheena tabau, despotism would not have been possible in the Muslim world. Because when you obey the order of a despot, despotism cannot function without the, someone following the orders of a higher up and relegating moral responsibility to them is saying, well, it is not, it, it, you know, I, I was, I'm just doing what I'm told. 
and it is remarkable that we, we, we you know, you, you talk about a tradition that generated all these nuances of moral insight that has ended up where it has ended up today. Now, notice 168. <laughs> Now, we are so accustomed to this type of discourse in the Quran, 168-169. But we should pause and reflect on the import of something like this. Ya ayyuhal nas, kulu mimma fil ardi halalan tayyiba. So, the, the import of this language is as if Allah is saying, traverse, live on this earth, enjoying what this earth offers. Now, we know that, and we've already talked about this, the refrains in the Quran against an ifsatful art, corrupting the earth, or causing corruption on earth. the goodness that this ayah calls for and then it tells you don't follow in the the footsteps of the shaitan because shaitan is an enemy who commands you to do so what is morally decrepit what is simply immoral and to say about God what you do not know. Now the reason I, I pause at this at this is that often the the there is innately we know what comes from the side of God and what comes from the side of shaitan. So you say, don't walk in the footsteps of the shaitan. Whether we regardless of the technicalities and the positive legal commandments this way or that way. I think the vast majority of us would say that injustice is walking in the footsteps of the shaitan, that God does not command injustice. Most of us would recognize cruelty as walking in the footsteps of shaitan. 
most of us would recognize that whatever breaks up families, causes discord in families, is walking in the footsteps of shaitan. This, this basic moral thrust Often, if you skip over the general moral principles and start arguing about the details, you miss the point entirely. Being thoroughly anchored in the general moral principles will temper whatever disagreements or whatever variances we have about the details. So, Metridi, for instance, and Anna Rossi, and again, the, the, you find the, that when, when um, the, the, the discussion that they, they is that when Allah says that that when how do I put this that when Allah says don't follow in the footsteps of the shaitan Allah is appealing to something that is innate in you that you can recognize the handwork or the 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 effects of what comes from the shaitan as something that is universal and common to most human beings. And then, that an attribute to God what you do not know the the one it is a great moral failure to attribute to God something that is shaitani in nature. So to attribute to God um injustice to say that this injustice is God's will this is to attribute suffering misery to God's will to say that well this misery is because so, and here it's the, the implications of this, I think, for every day and age are profound. Um, you want to understand this? Look at, for instance, what ISIS did in Iraq. If, if, you, ever, if you followed the impact, their practices in human trafficking, the enslavement of women, the suffering inflicted on 
so many women, the sexual assaults committed on women, to come and say that this is God's will. This is أَن تَقُولُوا اللَّهِ مَا لَا تَعْلَمُونَ الشَّيْطَانِ it, it feels demonic. سوء and فحشاء and abomination. And it is a failure in understanding morality and virtue to make law justify the, these immoral results. Anyway, there is no. Finally, for today, we'll come to 170, which, uh, no, this is 171. Let's see how Muhammad translates it. So, the parable of those who are bent on denying the truth is like that of a Oh, he, he, Muhammad Asad says, that of the beast which hears the shepherd's cry and hears in it nothing but sound of a voice and a call. Deaf are they and dumb and blind, for they do not use their reason. So, that image, there is a very interesting grammatical discussion about this, whether the Quran, with Allah saying, Is it saying that it is like the sheep who hears the, the yelling of the shepherd, but doesn't under, understand what the shepherd is saying? Or is it like the shepherd who is yelling in sort of in 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 um, shepherd yelling in the night where the sheep doesn't understand, doesn't comprehend what the shepherd is saying. Either way. Whether it is a sheep that is hearing the yelling or the shepherd who is doing the yelling. Uh, in some of the tafasir they say the shepherd yelling in the heart of the night and the only thing that the shepherd hears back are the echoes of his own yelling. Which is an interesting image. But anyway. The reaction to the yelling the yelling communicates an emotion, an impulse. So the, the, whether the, the shepherd is yelling and seeing the sheep responding, the sheep is not, res not comprehending anything, but reacting to an impulse.
Similarly, if it's the sheep that's hearing the yelling, the sheep is not comprehending anything, but reacting to an impulse. What is missing in this relationship is rational reasoning because there is no real communication but simply relating by a basic impulse and that impulse is not towards a higher good not an understanding an elevated understanding of morality of virtue but simply an impulse that reacts to safety fear and desire so you feel an impulse you eat you hear and you hear a sound you react to an impulse you move a certain direction another impulsive reaction makes you stop and eat that image in the quran living a life in which you follow in the footsteps of shaitan is very much like that impulsive living so abdul jabbar says that in these areas in these areas the quran set the foundation for the very idea of a reflective virtuous life now of course whether you you anyway let's strike that so a reflective virtuous life that the very nature of khatawat shaitan is a life that doesn't aspire for virtue it is a life that doesn't aspire for anything beyond mere impulses i take this a step further and say it is a life that accepts traditions of classism it is a life that accepts traditions of racism it is a life that accepts traditions of bigotry of deep injustices of sexism and doesn't reflect upon them but simply accepts them and impulsively reacts to them by saying well that makes us safe that makes us unsafe that's that fulfills our basic desires a powerful image of a base primitivism now of course someone like abdul jabbar was quite was, was well aware of the greek tradition when he argued what he argued and someone like rousey although he is rapidly anti-mu'tazili in every sense but even rousey says it ends up agreeing with precisely the same argument although he spends a lot of time and space refuting the mu'tazila on 
particularities, but he ultimately says that if it is as if Allah, sorry, that Allah clearly sets in this portion of the Quran, of Surah Al-Baqarah, that a non-reflective life, a life that responds to impulses and habit, impulses and habit, is a morally condemnable life, morally condemnable life from an Islamic perspective, so that anyone that lives that way, responding to impulses of desire, hunger, um, and habit and tradition is condemned, is by definition, by definition, following in the footsteps of shaitan. While a life that aspires towards al-birr, al-haq, al-sidq, al-adl, all these concepts of virtue, as we'll see in Surah Al-Baqarah later on, is precisely the a life that is contra the anecdote that is given by Allah in Surah Al-Baqarah. Okay, let's stop here uh, and have Greece come do the honors so we can officially break. Um, and inshallah we'll continue we're not going as fast as I would have liked but uh, don't blame me blame my family uh, or email my family and tell them to stop harassing me about not rushing and to let me rush and then I'll finish Surah Al-Baqarah next halaqah but if they keep after me telling me not to rush I can't guarantee I'll finish Surah Al-Baqarah next halqa. So there you go. Don't rush. Thank you for not rushing. Take your time. I think we, you know, Surah Baqarah deserves its full due. And I know all of us, people here who are not seeing, um, all of us are like thumbs down every time. He's like, I want to rush. Let me go. <laughs> so um, thank you for, for, for that. And I... Um, I know you're always tired of me thanking you and expressing my gratitude. So I thought that what I would do to finish is just to point out, like a lot of times when I'm taking notes and I'm always writing furiously, it's the only thing that I actually use my hand to scribe with because who who uses a pen anymore, right? So, <laughs> but this this is what I do. And when I'm taking these notes, like I oftentimes will write, you know, everything is brilliant, but then I put a special star next to the things that for me were especially powerful and I think that it's important as you've taught us to be specific also like so when I thank you I want to be specific about things that I thought were really valuable so, you know we get washed in this ocean of knowledge and it's so wonderful and you know after a while you just get you you know you're, it's on, you're on this high but um, and we often also don't get the time to go back and look at our notes because we're on to the next Sura but let me just share with you the things that really stuck out for me this one the idea of the, and I'm just going to read some of my stars, the um, endorsement of pluralism, 
um, verse 148, that the whole idea of um, the direction of prayer, that Muslims must be at the forefront of doing what is good and being pioneers of virtue, which I think is just a beautiful term, um, pointing out that um, the, the, the al-al-hadith position that the youth often um, use when they think about hikmah being the equivalent of hadith, but hikmah being so much more, and that no one, I don't think, knows, at least it doesn't seem like, I've never heard that, um, you know, when it gets portrayed as the orthodox position, I feel like the youth probably have no clue that this is really not at all um, far from being the orthodox position. So even the fact that there are multiple positions might be something unusual. Um, your point about connecting um, Tazkiyya um, and Al-Nafs and Tazkiyya Al-Aql and the idea that Dhikr Allah has to and, you know, be a part of everything from purifying the soul to purifying the intellect to even warfare, which is incredible. Um, the whole notion of learning from pain and depression and anxiety, which is just a game changer for our society that is just completely all about how to medicate, you know, and largely connected to the um, pharmaceutical industry and how much money they have to, to make. But the idea of not turning that into growth and learning. Um, the, the whole phraseology of to God we belong and to God we return, I only ever hear Muslims use it when someone has died. So it was really important to hear the application of that, the relevance of that application to everything and even at using it as a painkiller. Um, the idea of um, conflating, this is our understanding of Surah Baqarah, the idea of conflating a, more, a general moral principle with um, an example of positive law that God gave in the time of the revelation then, I think it's such an important understanding. Um, because that's what makes the Quran then relevant to our, our age, but so much of the Muslim community gets tripped up in the positive law, and if so, that was really an important insight. And then even just the notion of walking in the foot footsteps of shaitan and the whole idea of being thoroughly anchored in general principles and not getting lost in, in the details of an argument, which if anyone has a social media account, the minute you say something general about being moral, everyone jumps into the detail of the argument and trying to just, you know, um, focus on um, the trees and completely losing the forest. Um, and that, you know, these are things that are addressed to a, a universal audience. And these are things when the Quran speaks to us, is speaking to us as human beings um, innately. And so these are just, the highlights, but there was so much. I mean, there's so much more than that, but just to share some of the things that I found especially moving, because um, that's what I'm grateful for. Thank you so much. And uh, anyway, I noticed that we have um, a lot of new faces also on the interactive group, and so I wanted to just take this moment to let people know we we're gonna we're gonna um, spend a little bit of time after we end the live stream just to say hello if everyone has a moment just so we can interact a little bit. But if anyone who's watching would like to join the interactive group, um, it's just a lovely way for us to kind of, you know, increase our virtual audience since we obviously are in time of COVID and we can't really open up our space. But um, 
just you know it's um this is an important community and i think it's important for people to feel connected and we wanted to give people a chance you know when you're on the interactive group and you're on the, the google meet here in front of us you're literally like sitting right in front of the sheikh so it's kind of a nice um engagement um and i think it's uh, an opportunity um for us to get to know each other a little bit better so if anyone would like to join the interactive group definitely um you know email me um sign up for our weekly email so you can also you know keep abreast of different things that we're doing you can read some of the really cool um, reflections and summaries on um, the the chapters that we've covered through project illumin um, and just kind of know what we're doing so um, just a, a quick shout out so you guys hang on for a second and um, thank you everybody for being with us for this amazing session and uh, have a wonderful rest of the weekend and we look forward to seeing you next wednesday inshallah for day eight so sure. inshallah